0: For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. I wanted to just remind you about a little piece of, of kind of strategy for Mission Church, and it's called the Outpost Model, and I want to explain this a little bit. It'll come up in the sermon, but just give you a little piece of kind of our theory on why we're doing church the way we are. This little image is is a part of that. And the idea is that what we want to do well is we want to represent the church in spaces where people are, are searching or questioning their faith. And so we we thought about this, and we thought, you know, we we want to be faithful Christians. We don't want to try to invent anything. We don't want to want to do something that is, you know, feels as if it's leaving orthodoxy. But at the same time, we want to position ourselves intentionally to where we understand the questions that people are asking, the things that people are dealing with. So we want to we want to communicate that that that's an aim of ours. We want to talk to people um, who who have questions, who are skeptical, who are maybe. You know, engaging with leaving the church or just looking at the church. We don't want to be placing ourselves where we don't actually engage with those folks, and we want that to shape uh, how, we, how we do ministry. And so one, uh, one piece, there are many layers of how we're trying to work that out, but well, one piece of that is that we're trying to do things like in, engage in bivocationalism as leaders. And so the leaders of our church, everybody who's on staff and such, we are all in some other career as well, And part of how that that shapes me, because I've done full-time ministry before where I was just in kind of the ministry office and only having conversations with believers, is it really did kind of isolate me. It took up time and it it made it difficult for me to to understand the conversations that were going on within the culture. And so at this juncture for me, I'm I'm working in a business association. I work at a retail store that we co-own. And I, I bump into a lot of people kind of just in the community, and I, I tend to hear a lot of what, what is on people's minds, what's concerning to them, sometimes them knowing I'm a pastor, other times not. And I hope that that sort of idea infiltrates out into just how we all live. I, I think you all have the real gift of being in your friend circles and within your, your vocation. You are, you're with people and you're hearing their stories, you're hearing their angles, and I hope that that's factoring in for you as you think through, how how do I engage my faith with people? And I hope that you see that you're representatives of our church at all times. Like, you are taking uh, the ministry of our church out into the world, you know, the rest of the days of the week. And that this is just kind of a time to check in, recharge, and anchor ourselves into Christ. So, there you go. There's my little... uh, my little pitch for, for that. And that works out, like I said, in many ways, but there's at least a piece of it for you to think about today. And let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the chance to be with these, these people who we call brothers and sisters. Uh, thank you for the chance to come before you, to hear your word, to worship you, to lift our hearts to you. I know that many of us come. We, we have different backgrounds. We have been in different places. We have different journeys. I pray that you'd speak to each of us today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Fiona read for us from Galatians 5, 13 to 15. And here in Galatians, I believe we have a keystone teaching on the idea of motivation. That's what I want to talk about today, that what motivates us to serve. And so that you see that theme that, that this freedom that we've been given uh, in Christianity through Jesus is given to us to, to serve, to do good works. And so how do, we, how do we motivate ourselves to do this, or how does that work? How, how does this function? And so this question is, it's practical in many ways. I mean, this is going to lead us into tangible acts of service and love for others, but it's also theological in that it's really important that we kind of get the order of things correct or else our motivation can be thrown off entirely. So I want to engage this question um, to today, how do we change and what motivates us to look beyond ourselves to God and uh, to benefit our brothers and sisters? And, and I, I think we can see that in the scripture. So just for, for a reminder, where we're at in, uh, in this book, in this place, we're in Galatia, uh, a Greco-Roman city, where Christianity is new and it requires a deep commitment because it's, it's not the norm, it's a brand new idea. You've got, they're being criticized by people coming from Judaism at this point and in, in this book of Galatia, being, being told they're not doing enough, uh, that they need to do more to actually be faithful. And they would have been critiqued by their culture at large because the, the Roman empire uh, had no real place for Christianity. At this, at this point, they didn't see it as threatening Um, It was just new and strange. And so, so far in Galatians, we've talked a lot about what we're free from because Paul has been talking about how this Jewish critique that said that they needed to follow more feasts and festivals and they needed to hold on to circumcision, that this was incorrect because of the freedom they'd found in Jesus. And so that's what we're free from. But Paul's now shifting to what we're free to or unto. And we're going to be talking about more of this in the coming weeks. We're going to see things like the fruit of the Spirit, which is where Paul's going to tell us, look, the the impact of this freedom is you're going to have these these characteristics that are characteristic of the Spirit of God. But but today, I want to engage in in, in kind of a concern first, and, and then I want to work out the, the, the way this motivation element of grace and freedom really works. But um, I'm going to look at this under kind of a rubric. I don't know, maybe it's because Arizona's doing sports betting now. This is news. Um, and so kind of got a risk-wager framework for us. The risk of freedom, the wager of the gospel, what we have to lose, and the potential payoff. So that's, that's what I want to work us through this evening. Here's the scripture again. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. At least that's the beginning. And I should say, as I, I've already framed it as brothers and sisters, the, the word here is, was spoken of uh, or is used to speak of mixed groups, mixed genders, families, tight-knit friend groups and such. So this really is to us all. But the big question here is why this immediate disclaimer? Why did Paul so quickly have to explain what not to do with our freedom? Why did he have to say, you know, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And the simple answer to that is that in Paul's day, the same fear existed that exists today. And that's the fear that people can't be trusted with spiritual freedom or a promise of security from God and hope that people can't be trusted with it. And essentially the fear is this, if you tell people they have access to God, reconciliation to God outside of obedience to the law, that they'll take that information and dishonor God and mistreat one another if they don't have the pressure of kind of a law structure over them. And a similar fear you see comes up from other biblical promises, such as the idea that God secures or promises salvation to people. This is one that that people get nervous about. And you hear something like, you read John 10, and he says, you know, those that the Father has given to me will not perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And, And people say, wow, that's a strong promise from Jesus, and people go, hey, 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 be careful with that. Be careful with that, because if you tell people that, you know, they're they're going to go off and do all kinds of crazy stuff, because they're not going to be motivated to stay in the faith if there's nothing to lose, right? Or you know, similarly, the promise of Philippians one, where Paul says, "He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus," and you go, that that sounds very strong. The faithfulness of God is going to complete this in me. But we hear that and we go, ah, wait, 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 wait. Where's the work? Where's the hard work? Because if you don't tell people about the hard work, they might slack off and they won't do these things, you know. Be careful with that. There's a a real fear uh, that we have that people won't be sufficiently motivated to adhere to the faith if you tell them they're safe um, or you tell them there's no kind of detriment to their soul if they fail or if they don't work hard at this. Um, And it becomes, it feels very risky the promised freedom or hope or salvation that isn't conditioned on obedience. And so do you feel that tension in yourself when you think of spiritual? Do you feel that tension of, you know, what, what do we do with this? And that's, now, this, what's happening in this scripture, what's happening in those other scripture, scriptures is exactly what Jesus and Paul insist we must do, though. And I, I'm saying it feels like a risk the risk. And what they insist we must do is offer absolute freedom, absolute safety and security because of grace. So, And that's based upon the, what I'm calling the wager of the gospel. So it goes on, Paul goes on in Galatians to say, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and we know from Jesus that there, there is... One other key side of that law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. The second one is like it love your neighbor as yourself. So, this is how the law is fulfilled. So, the wager of the gospel, I'll define it this way, is that the grace of God holds within it spiritual power that leads the recipient of that love to law keeping. That's the wager of the gospel. The wager of the gospel is that. The the grace of God holds a power within it, that those who truly accept and experience it are actually transformed into people who love and keep the law. Okay? Jesus said it this way: John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He he states that pretty strong, pretty categorically. And this is where the harmony of the Bible is found. We've talked about this over and over here at Mission because. There's this sense that there's these two sides of the Bible. There's all this law, and and we, you know, we see that Jesus came and fulfilled it and it's no longer required. But then certain parts of it we do think are required because we're not really ready to say murdering's okay now, right? And so there's kind of this that so we're like, what do we do with these, with all of these laws where some of them seem kind of over the top and and too much, and and some of them seem pretty clearly connected to what Jesus did, and others still seem pretty pretty critical. And so it, it, it's hard. What do we do with this tension? And this is kind of what we see in the teachings of Paul. The law pointed us to our need for grace. It, it had several roles. It pointed us to our need for grace. It shows us the absolute demands of a holy and perfect God who demands mercy, justice, and sacrifice. That he, he demands absolute perfection because it's who He is. And it teaches us the character and ways of a gracious God. And in the Old Testament, in fact, grace is stewarded to people through things like, at first it starts kind of with fathers, and then it begins to, to enter into the temple system. And it's stewarded through the priests who are gracious mediators. They're given by God to the people to represent sinful people. It's given through the sacrifices where, where innocent creatures bear the sin of guilty creatures, and in the New Testament, that grace is simply expanded. It's greater, it's perfected in Jesus, who is the great high priest, the great sin bearer himself. He's God come in the flesh. He's grace come in person. There's this unity of the Bible that where the law was always good. It was always It always ought to be kept, and in many ways, Jesus absolutely kept and fulfilled parts of it. And then enables us by his spirit because of his sacrifice to love and uphold the rest of it. The Bible is one. I want to I work through something around grace, though, to help you imagine and kind of prepare to apply Jesus to this situation. So let, let's do some imagination work around this wager. I hope it's making sense, but I hope you'll see it even more through these scenarios. Number one, the family. We'll look at the business world and the family, but first the family. Imagine two different couples, okay? And one of them uses a power to get things done. That that is probably the typical one that probably most families tend to utilize, and that's manipulation. And that kind of works something like this. It sounds terrible, but it can feel really, really ordinary. Something like this. She... The husband might say, she wants to pursue her hobbies, but she doesn't really let me pursue mine, right? She wants to go and spend all this money, but when I spend money, it's questioned. So I'm not going to kind of help her uh, spend that money or pursue her hobbies. I won't speak ill of it. I'll just kind of disengage from that conversation. There'll be, I, do I feel a little bit of resentment? Yeah, but. You know, it's just that it's not really fair because she doesn't really give me the time of day when I do that kind of stuff, so why am I going to give her, like, all this engagement over this issue? And, and you see what that is. It's a punishment being enacted. It's subtle. But I, you, I withhold from you what you withhold from me, and we kind of have this little tension. It's manipulation. It's transactional. If you give me what I want, I'll give you more. If you don't give me what I want, I'll withhold from you. It's if-then. It's, it's transactional. And then there's a second couple. In this relationship, they have the same issues, right? The same conversations over, say, hobbies or, um, or, or acting like, you know, there are no problems when there are or whatever. They very minor issues. These aren't crazy people. But one of them decides, look, um, I just want to bring a smile to their face. I, I'm just going to go over the top and sacrificially bless them, maybe in a way they've never even done for me. And, and you know what, like, even if they don't see it, even if they don't acknowledge it for what it is, I won't make them pay. I'll just give it and just let it go. It'll just be a pure gift. And that's a risky thing to do. i i I talk with people. I, I deal with this tension myself. Like it, it's a risky thing to do because it feels like if I give that, I could be neglected. I could be trampled on. And, and if, do I keep on doing that? It's painful it opens you up to some some serious pain. But, But now ask the question, of those two couples, of those two situations, which has the most potential for reciprocal love? In which of those scenarios, you know, is there more potential for transformation and growth and continual reciprocal love? Now imagine two work environments, right? One is characterized by the power of threat, So maybe there's a boss, and the boss makes it known, like, if you blow it, I will fire you, like, no doubt about it, and look, I did it to this guy and this guy, don't mess with me, right? And then the employee is like, well, guess what? I will leave in a matter of seconds in the middle of whatever you are doing if you even dare treat me like this and talk down to me. I will be out of here, forget you right? Okay, there's some, there's some power here. There's some, might you not get fired or get your work? Yeah, you might. That's how a lot of work environments do indeed work, even if it's not so, you know, out front. But the other work environment is characterized by generosity, um, where there's a generosity of benefits. I'll give you as much as I can, even, even if it hurts my bottom line, and a generosity of service. You know what? I'll help as much as I can. I'll do what I'll do what I can. I'll, I'll, I'll work as hard as I can, even if you don't quite see it all or or understand or or acknowledge it all. I'm gonna, I want you to succeed, says the employee, right? Which which employer has the strongest chance for long-term retention? Which employee has the strongest chance for future promotion? Now the latter is risky, right? You could get you could be generous and get walked on. You could be you know, you get upfront give so many things to your employees and they go, hey, thanks for the benefits, I'll be working from home, not, nah, right? Or, but, but which can lead to the best outcome? Which has the potential for the best outcome? And in both situations, we know the answer. Generosity and blessing have more power to transform the relationship, but it can be hard to believe and it can feel very risky because it feels like these things could be trampled and squandered but it's the best chance we have. In those kind of situations, the data shows those are the relationships that that grow and are healthier and in which there's more and more reciprocal love and care are the ones where something is given without it being manipulative, where it's given as a gift. It's just freely offered. It transforms situations. Now, this is a deep, this is a shadow, if you will, of a deep spiritual truth. It's, it's, showing us that this wager of grace that God banks on every time, it, it works. I mean, we're talking about, about surface-level things in our, in our daily lives that reflect how things work in spiritual places. This is what we're invited to believe in and invite others to, that, that the gracious attributes of God, believed in and experienced, actually lead us to worship that God and love one another. That is what motivates and transforms our heart. The wager is that grace-giving is more powerful than wielding the law. That's the wager. The flip side of the wager is this, that we can try to do with the law what only grace can do. We can try to do with the law what only grace can do. And that one always backfires and leads to dysfunction. It's manipulation. It's holding a threat over God. Now, what do we have to lose? It feels like what we have to lose is that, that people won't be really obedient. Or like in those human situations, it feels like we'll get trampled on, we could get walked on. But what do, we, what do we really have to lose? In this scripture, Paul says this, if you bite and devour one another, watch out, you're not consumed by one another. And that, that's, I looked at that for a while. I thought, well, this is, I mean, this is the language. It's, it's like two wolves fighting for dominance, right? If you bite and devour one another, one of you you'll be consumed by you'll destroy one another basically. And and I think what this is getting at is the warning is you'll slip away from your most human traits. You'll slip away from your capacity to act upon the highest principles. You'll become in a, in a sense more inhumane. If you if you operate by the law and you do not operate by grace, you will become less, in a way, human. You'll become savage. That's, that's kind of what this is saying, basically. And consider the logic this way. If, if one of the most profound attributes of God is grace, and this is something I've come to believe more and more. I mean, there's a, there's a key scripture. I talk about it here a lot, 1 Peter 1, 10-12. And, and this one just, it's jumped at me for years because here Peter is saying that we can't neglect this great salvation. This is what he's telling his, his hearers. The prophets, they, they longed to see this day when Jesus would come and, and he would offer himself and transform our lives. This good news that Jesus suffered and his subsequent glories, Peter says. And he, he's talking about how the prophets longed to see it Those who walked before long to see it, we get to see it. And then he adds this little piece on, he says, these are the things into which angels long to look. And that that to me is a huge statement. I mean, think about it, the angelic beings, these are beings that know and interact with God. Like what could they possibly not already know, right? What could they possibly not already know? And and the answer seems to be, I mean, have you ever heard of the salvation story for angels? Of how Jesus died on the cross for angels? You know, why is that? There's something about our fallen state. There's something about our brokenness. There's something about it to where we are actually able to receive grace because we don't know what we're doing. When you think about Jesus on the cross, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do, right? Something about our how we're lower than the angels, something about our position makes us able to receive grace because we don't rebel face to face. We rebel against a God we see dimly, right? And so God creates people who, in a sense, from whom he is veiled. They don't know all of the knowledge that he knows. In In the garden, they don't know the knowledge of good and evil. They don't quite understand him as the angels do. And he's created us, and what's his key plan for us? What is he doing? What's he planning from the foundation of the world? He's planning to give us grace, that into which the angels long to look. What that must mean is that the expression of the graciousness of God is one of his top priorities, that it might be why he created us. It might be the most important thing we could ever behold. And if that's true, if, if God giving grace is kind of key to the reason we're even here, then one of the key components to the human heart would be seeing, acknowledging it, receiving it, being moved by it, being changed by it, and therefore being able to offer it to others. So think about this. like, So what do you have to lose? If you offer the thing you were created to, to receive, if you offer the thing you were created to experience, and somebody tramples on it, say they trample on the gospel, say they trample on a gracious act that you do, what what have you lost? You've offered what God has offered to humanity. You've offered what Christ has offered. Think about what you get. Think about what you get. You can identify with Christ in his suffering, in that he offered grace, And that many looked at it and just saw just another criminal, just another failure. That can happen to you. That's risky. But the worst thing that happens in that is you get to identify with Christ. And you say, okay, so I offer it and it's rejected. But what good is that to the other person? Wouldn't it be better if I, you know, if there was a way to change their behavior? Is there a place for rules here? Like what about that, right? And again, rules are best kept when the rule giver is loved. In fact, there are hints throughout the scriptures that God is actually displeased with obedience, with following rules when not done with a heart that loves him. There are times where he says, stop your worship services, stop your festivals, but the way that you mistreat the poor shows that you do not know me, you do not know my grace, you do not love me, so stop following your rules. It's actually an abomination to me. God so deeply, he wants you to love him, know him, be transformed by him, and for your rule keeping to be an offering of true worship that reflects your heart, Okay? So grace becomes this litmus test of love, even in its rejection. If a heart is ever to wake up, if if it's ever to be aware and responsive to God, it will be because it's experienced grace. You can keep rules for a million reasons. You can keep laws for a million reasons. It doesn't tell you anything about your heart other than that you're human and you like to win and be the best. But when you encounter grace this tells you something about our hearts. This is why the greatest warnings in the New Testament are those given to people who claim to, be, to believe in Jesus, but, not, they, but they hadn't been, been transformed. They turned grace into a license. In, in Romans 6, Hebrews 6, you have these warnings that say, if you continue sinning after having encountered Jesus, tasted of the heavenly gift, it's like you're crucifying him and, and displaying him to public disgrace. If you've seen grace and you remain unmoved, it's offering you this mirror, this ultimate mirror to your heart that you should look in and say, what's wrong with me, right? How have I not been transformed? It's a, it's a call to action. It's a wake-up call. It's a shock to the system. Grace has the best chance of giving you the shock to the system. The law will just make you feel bad and guilty and sorry for yourself, but extensions of further grace are a wake-up call. What's going on with my heart? So what's the potential payoff? That's, I think the worst that can happen is you might encounter the wake-up call that could save your life, or you might identify with Christ. If you live out of grace, exercise grace, give grace, or or if you offer to someone that they could see or experience grace themselves. That's the worst that can happen is you can give them their greatest chance at waking up. And what's the potential payoff? Paul at the beginning of this says, you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. In Galatia, as I said earlier, people were, were distrusting that grace was enough. They'd been They'd been told they needed to add to the grace the feasts and the festivals and they needed to add the circumcision. And they were being, they, they were being taught to use the manipulation and the law to get, to get God's favor. They were being told it's not enough just to be accepted in Christ. You have to do more. You have to do more to get God's favor. And this approach was actually causing division and confusion. So here's a conclusion. The, a lack of trust in grace in the inner life um can lead to a lack of extending grace to others that's what we saw in galatians they didn't they were beginning to distrust that grace was enough so they started to divide from one another right and then this is in a sense this inner problem of distrusting grace manifesting out in practical ways and it's not just theory it this is an inside out proposal that when you distrust in grace you begin to act in divisive ways. You begin to devour, you begin to to bite one another. When you trust in grace, when you inwardly rest in grace, it changes your outward movement toward others. And this is what we have to gain. It allows you to become a true witness of the grace of God's kingdom to others. It can change our hearts. It gives us freedom to do the right things for the right reasons. You've probably heard the word repentance. This is the idea of what you do when you come to faith. You, you change direction and move toward God. Nobody, you know, when you change direction, you're, you're walking this way, you're walking towards something. There's a goal. You have a goal. When you turn and walk the other direction, you've what? You've changed goals. So not only have you changed behavior, you've changed the reason for your behavior. Freedom in Christ allows us to do things for the right reasons because we've reoriented Our direction and our souls to God. Now I've experienced this as a recipient many times, but here's one of the more profound examples for me. When I was 17, um, I worked at the Christian bookstore here in town, and I was fired from that store on Christmas Eve. Some of you have heard this. So this is my number one reason I'm a pastor today, is because actually this is not even that's that's not even hyperbole. That's actually true. One of the reasons I'm a pastor today is because I was fired from the Christian bookstore at age 17 on Christmas Eve. And I wasn't happy about it. I had my arguments, um, but of course I deserved it. Um, the truth is, there was like a three-strike system, and I definitely had about strike 2.9. And they made a lot of room. And the final event on Christmas Eve, no matter how little it felt to me, it got me up to that three, and I was fired. Okay. So I never wanted to see the owner of the store again like ever, but his son was my friend and that was complicated. And so I kind of had to think about it. And so one day I I needed something from the store and he owned the store. So he wasn't always there. And I kind of figured I'll get in and get out. And I get in, I walk to one of the shelves, I pick up something and there I look up, sheesh, there he is, right, right in front of me. Perfect. And he, he's just standing there looking at me and I go, and for whatever reason, um, in my you know attempt to get out of the situation, I I said, Hey, uh, I'm so I'm really sorry for what I did on Christmas. You know, and I and I and I, I said I was sorry. It was probably mostly wholehearted. I hope it was I was it was just really uncomfortable. And to my shock, not only did he say that's okay, he lit up and threw his arms wide open and just gave me this absolute bear hug and just said, I was hoping I'd see you again. I was hoping we'd get to have a conversation like this. If you ever needed any work, you just come back in here anytime. And I, th- I was like, whoa, what is that, right? And as many of you know, he not too long after advocated to bring me on, sh- on staff at his church, though I was underqualified and inexperienced. And and he, he got me into ministry. I mean, he, he brought me back into his life, in the ministry. And, and I can tell you, he's someone I've observed in years since. And this is a person who rests in the grace of God, of God toward himself. He, he knows his flaws. He knows his history. He knows his tendencies. He rests in the grace of God to himself. So he gave a measure of it to me. And it became to me like a living parable for the way that grace works. There's a reason I keep coming back to this story for you all, right? It transferred his doctrinal belief to me into something tangible that I could actually feel and experience. It livened up the biblical text. It made it real to my heart. His freedom from the law, his freedom from selfish motivations led him to treat me with grace, which has led me to see grace and honor him even more, and I became a better employee. I I, I began I, I love him. That's what happened through his offering of risky grace. Okay, so grace can change hearts, even I mean the grace of Jesus and even grace-shaped actions. Grace can grow the kingdom of God, it can give us freedom. I think, to share the good news, to share the gospel. Zach and I had a little courtyard conversation um, over at the house the other day, and it it just rang true. I added it in here because of it. But sometimes um, we can see ourselves as having received grace, but we need to learn to walk in it. And Zach was talking about an experience he had where in the past he'd been in kind of ministry circles, and people had told him, you have to share the gospel you have to tell other people about Jesus. Don't miss any opportunities. And he walked around feeling like he was always like missing opportunities constantly. Like, oh no, was that an opportunity? Was that a missed opportunity? Ah, ah. And and he 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 would try to get over the hump and share about Jesus, and it just he couldn't seem to get any traction. And when he was saying this, I was thinking, "Yes, I have done this too. Like this was so much of my time in ministry." And then he said at one point he learned that, that God would work in people's hearts even if he missed missed his opportunity or failed. And he began to just rest in that God had a good plan and it wasn't all on his shoulders to fix it. And he said, There's what's things have changed. Like people have been have been asking him, like, what what do you believe? Tell me more. Like something about his inward just resting has opened him up to more sharing of the gospel than ever before. And, and, and I think that's true because our rest in God is for, far more powerful than us operating out of like, guilt or duty or anything like that. I actually think, I, I showed you that outpost model illustration, I think this is a critical element for us to understand. Because I've observed in, in us and myself operating out of other motivations whether it's that we want to get things right, we want to get our doctrine right, um, we don't want to feel shame for, for not being bold or not being strong or not saying the right things, and we come across as awkward at best or, or worse, as self-centered. Like we're kind of going about our own objectives. And I'm telling you, people in our, in our culture or surrounding it, they, they can smell that a mile away. You know Why? Because it smells like everything else. It's just somebody being self-centered again, somebody trying to build their tribe, somebody trying to build their club. It's just typical, here it goes again, right? But on the other hand, what people are not used to seeing is the aroma of heaven, of freedom, of true inward spiritual freedom, that where, where you're not worried about whether or not you get this done. Or do it right. But you're just truly, like from the perspective of your soul, free. <laughs> your generosity is just real generosity. It's just true. The peace that's within you transcends understanding. It, it isn't what the circumstances would cause you to expect. It just seems to be deep and actual. The hope is is true. It's a hope that seems to be anchored outside of all other things. And that they don't have to get anything right for you to feel the hope. They're otherworldly things. These are the things that characterize the city on the hill, the, the light that shines out to people, that draws people in. is These are the, the effects of the free and anchored soul that knows grace and glories in grace and rests in grace. So we're free um, we're free, and we can offer that out to others. Finally, grace can sustain us through anything. I'm, I'm touching on this, but I want to add another layer to it. Freedom from what we can't control. And I think I think this, if you think about the last couple years, uh, I, I, I look out the last couple years, and one of the hardest things I've seen is, I think, and I'm going to say, we as the whole church, we as the church, have showed that we aren't anchored in our hope very much. Um, we haven't been anchored in just a, a belief that God is indeed good, that His will is is perfect and trustworthy, um, that the hope of the gospel is is really truly all that we need. And I, I say we aren't anchored in that because we've been fighting, we've been biting, we've been devouring, like we've been exhibiting something. And, and, and it's when the situation got difficult, when things were hard, when things like freedoms felt like they were being pulled away, we, we went, ah, and then we lashed out, we had to fight. I just finished a book that really challenged me on this issue. It, it feels extreme, but it's, it's a true story. I read a biography, it's called A Different Kind of Cell. I actually just sat it back on the, on the um, bookshelf back there if you have any interest in it. There's only one, so only one of you can do this. Um, but but it was, it's about a man, Clayton Fountain, one, uh, apparently one of the most notorious and murderers in the, in the uh, prison system back in the 70s. And he had, he had a hard journey with his father, and he was very much the, the military man who was always going to follow the rules and get things right. And he encountered one of his officers who um, was, was mean to him, was unjust to him, who treated him terribly, treated others terribly, and he snapped and he killed him. Um, and he took some hostages, and he ended up in prison. And in prison, he just he just kept going down. He killed inmates, he killed guards, and it, it got so bad that they ended up putting him, not only, they put him in isolation, and, and he was still so angry and causing so much trouble, they built him his own cell. They, they ended up... Um, the Oklahoma City bomber ended up down the hall from him. They built another specialty cell for Timothy McVeigh, right? Like these cells were made for the worst of the worst, and it had like multiple. Like you, you went in. To, there was like a little room where he had to go in, and then they locked him in there, and then he could enter into his other room. And there were multiple. If he if he was taken out, he had electric belts around him um, so that they could zap him at any movement. Um, if he had to go get medical care. And this is serious, right? This is really, really serious. And and he was considered uh, one of the worst, one of the most violent and worst criminals in the the justice system. And so an article went out in the paper, and a a lady who had had a really rough life decided um, to write him a letter. And she said, dear most dangerous criminal in the system. and wrote him and she wrote him a letter and it was just really straightforward it was like everyone says there's no hope for you and maybe they're right but i think there is it's jesus if you want to have any chance you need to you need to turn to him he is all that you can ever hope to have he saved my life he could save yours it's just this like punchy letter and he had actually come to the conclusion in that cell that he was never gonna get out. And if he ever had a chance to even get back into just maximum security, he had decided that he had to start behaving himself. So he tried some kind of bare-knuckle behavior stuff, and it wasn't working. And he gets this letter, and and something changes. I mean, they had some 20-some years of evidence that he uh, had a changed demeanor toward guards and other uh, other prisoners, and you go, other prisoners? How? He's in solitary confinement. He figured out how to tap encouragement into the pipes in Morse code. And so the other prisoners in his nearby cells could, if they knew Morse code, they could hear what he, and he would tap encouraging things and scripture to them through the pipes. He began working on degrees and exhibiting that, that he wanted to he wanted to go to school. He decided he wanted a PhD, but he couldn't make enough money. And he found out they started offering money for prisoners to turn in um other prisoners or to like give intel so he would make weapons in his cell out of parts of his cell and peacefully offer them to the guards and ask for the reward for showing them how so that he could pay for his education but but it was this pretty profound transformation and he started wanting to meet with a with a priest and the priests who worked with him were like kind of really skeptical and they and they started to wonder like what's going to When's it going to snap? When's he going to go back? And he started to get this desire for freedom. He started to get this desire within him. He'd been 15, 20 years without an incident, and he thought, maybe, maybe there's a chance that they'll let me go or let me out in a minimum security or something. And he began to discover his record was too bad. Was never, He had like five or six life sentences. It was never going to happen. And the priest who wrote this book, said he, he was like, this will be the moment. He snapped, he'll go back. He'll become angry. It's all going to change. And he, he went into what you might call a dark night of the soul. He began wrestling with God. He was facing his fear. He dealt with his anger with Jesus for a little bit, and he slowly emerged, and he found himself a saint, if you will. And it was a, it was a man named Maximilian Colby who was uh, who was in Auschwitz, he was a prisoner in Auschwitz. And there was a, a man who had been arbitrarily picked to be in solitary starvation confinement, but he had a wife and kids. And Maximilian Colby said, I, I, I will go in his place. And he went and he was isolated and he starved to death. And Clayton read his story and thought, that could be the rest of my life. I could suffer for others. I could make my cell into a hermitage and I could be a priest and I could pray for others because I have an opportunity to serve in a way that nobody else can. I'm utterly undistracted. And he resolved to do it. And he wrote to his mentor, the priest, and said, The possibility of me being asked to sacrifice my freedom for the rest of my life for Christ, I have determined is of no consequence in the overall scheme there will be a joy in submitting myself entirely to his will. I pray he grants me the grace to do his will and no longer my own. And then he typed that, and then he went and hand wrote in, this is true freedom, to do his will and no longer my own. Now, think about this. If a man who was abused by his father, who had such a bad personal track record that he was a murderer who spent the majority of his life in prison, who from his early 20s all the way to the end of his life was shaped only by the culture of the prison system, if that type of person could come to the place of saying, if I just have the grace to do his will and not my own, that is true freedom, how much more can we embrace that freedom? He had everything stacked against him how much more? Imagine if some of your freedoms are, I mean, think worst case scenario. The government comes, they take away your freedoms, they take away my housing allowance. They'd all, we're still not even close to in that type of situation. If he, in that kind of situation, can look and say, to be submitted to his will is true freedom, and I can use my unfree state to serve others, how much more? I'm not saying you want those things to happen. I'm not saying you don't try to work against those things happening. But we we should have anchored souls that experience freedom no matter what. That would be an absolute witness and testimony to the power and the grace of God. That's what impacted me when I read this book, right? The grace of God is completely sufficient to give us all the freedom that we need and the freedom is not, ju- it's not just freedom from the law, it's freedom to do his will no matter what the situation. Even the mo- in the most stark and dark situations, in any of the situations that we face, the freedom that we have anchors us in grace, it teaches us of grace, it whispers his grace so that we can actually live out of it and find that true freedom, that true peace that transcends all understanding. So, children of God, brothers and sisters, we rely on nothing else. The invitation this evening is to the table of Christ. And remember, you come to him empty-handed. You don't come bringing anything. You don't come bringing your obedience. You don't come bringing your your status. You don't come bringing anything of your own. You come empty-handed, and what you receive is you receive his obedience, his body broken for you. His status of of son, of the perfect sin bearer, the one whose blood was able to cleanse us from all of our sin. You come receiving his work on the cross, his work as the great high priest, his sufficiency as the sacrifice for sin. You come receiving grace. Our hearts were made for it. It's what Christ offers us week after week after week. Because our souls need to drink deeply, it's what we were made for. We were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. So come and receive Jesus Christ by faith. We're going to worship in three ways now. Um, soon, Mike's going to come up and lead us in in singing, and I hope that that singing for you will come from a genuine heart that loves His grace. Sing of His grace. Teach your heart the songs of grace. We're going to take a time of silence before he comes up, and this is a time for us just to come before Jesus. And, and when we come confessing before him, I mean, it's not just like confess the, the deepest, darkest sins. I mean, maybe, maybe just open up to him where you, you trust to believe that freedom is real, that this freedom of spirit is true, that, that grace is enough. He wants you to talk to him about that. He wants you to open up to him. He will bind up the brokenhearted. And then after that, that time of confession, when when Mike begins to sing, I'll be here at the table just offering Christ. It's all I really have to give you. And I'll be offering Christ to you. And giving's in the back. We pray that you would do that out of a thankful heart, that it would be an act of grace giving, not of keeping the law. So let's pray. And at the end of this, we'll spend uh, two minutes in confession. Father, thank you for your grace. Hearing stories like the, the story of Clayton Fountain is such a reminder to my soul that, truthfully, some people have drank deeper of your grace than I have, and I want to I know more of it. I want to know the freedom of spirit that would allow me in such a circumstance as his to be grateful and to say, this is true freedom. I want a taste of your grace to such, such, a, such a point that what I offer to others is less and less about me that I would begin to forget about myself. I, I believe we all desire this. That's why we're here, that we would be grace recipients and then grace givers that we would spread the aroma of the kingdom, that the impact we have would be a light that shines grace into the world. So I pray you'd instill this freedom deep in our souls. Lead us now as we confess before you. Bind up our broken hearts. Offer us freedom. Offer us the depths of your grace. In Jesus' name.